And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition and another year of The Other Side of Midnight. Yes, everyone, boys and girls, gerbils and germs, as Jimmy Durante used to say, it's another year. It's 2022. And, you know, um, science is supposed to be nothing if it's not prediction. And we're going to be making some New Year's predictions tonight, hopefully based on actual real data. Um, so we're going to kind of move through the morning and this will come up kind of naturally so we don't have to get all hot and bothered. Um, we are broadcasting, as usual, from the uh, studio here in this adobe hacienda perched on the edge of a gorgeous cliff with the sandias glimmering in the background when there's a moon and there is no moon tonight because I think it's either a new moon, meaning the moon is kind of between the earth and the sun or it's close to, so you can't see anything out there um, except for the thermometer, which is outside the studio window. And I kid you not, it is a very frigid 19.5 degrees Fahrenheit. And you can feel it. I mean, this is an old house and the windows have not been changed in a very long time. I mean, I used to live back east where we lived in colonials, which were built in the 1700s, or uh, thank you, Georgia, or, you know, at the latest in the 1800s. Um, but these houses, you know, were built, you know, like 50-some years ago. And uh, unless you replace the windows in a very dry desert climate, uh, cracks develop in adobe and mortar in wood and so it's a little bit drafty so from time to time you may hear this in the background this is one of the fans I have I actually have a heater so I can keep my toesies warm because uh, you know cold air sinks warm air rises uh, you know well you know all that anyway tonight what we're gonna do is an overview of where are we in perhaps the most extraordinary experiment that I have ever been involved in and I've got some really cool players on the Oumuamua team to help me go through tonight. We had we did have one casualty. We were going to introduce you to a new player. Unfortunately, um, he came down with something and we talked this afternoon and his voice was in no way, shape or form uh, ready for prime time, let alone even this time of the night. So I said gently, go to bed you know, take to aspirin, call me in the morning, and we're going to touch base midweek, and hopefully he'll be back on his feet um, uh, by next weekend. And so we will do an update again next Saturday on the decoding, because the most extraordinary thing about this is, A, we're getting real data. We're getting intelligent transmissions, and we will be going through this morning with um, how we know that. And item number two, um, we know they're in code. And some of the codes have been decoded. Um, David uh, Sarita is going to regale us with some new, really, really remarkably important information, which will kind of feed into the things I want to talk to Georgia about tonight, which is why I invited her back. And uh, John Womack has been also doing separate decoding and separate... Um, uh, spectral analysis, and he's got lots of interesting examples. So um, we'll get into all that in a few minutes, but I want to start by 
those of you who are new to the show, we have a phenomenon, a section of the broadcast called Radio with Pictures. The way you get to it is you uh, click on our URL. I presume you're listening on a smartphone, so it can do more than one thing. If you're listening on your smartphone and sitting in front of your computer, it's even better because some of these images are you know, kind of like big and you want to see the details and all that. So what you want to do is you want to click on the other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner, which says, Amuamua, what have we learned so far with the Enterprise Amuamua team there in full regalia? Click on that. That will take you to our guest page. And right under that banner, you will see um, what it says, Fast Links to Items. My name, David's name, John's name, and George's name. Click on my name. That will take you automatically down to my section, uh, about a third of the way down the page, so you can see my items. Item number one. Now, we're going to be featuring this uh, for the next several weeks. You'll notice that the item that we've had at the top of the news for, you know, since September, the status of La Palma, that that's missing tonight. The reason it's missing, I mean, kind of like for old time's sake, I was going to put it up there just so you can see that they've officially called a halt to the emergency around the eruptions and the gas emissions and the ash clouds and even the uh, earthquakes in La Palma like last week. And the website's missing. They closed it down. So the government uh, of the Canaries, of the of La Palma specifically, obviously must be very confident in their geophysics, in their geologists, given the fact that volcanoes are inherently extraordinarily unpredictable. That's an interesting act of faith on someone's part. But there was no live website to link to. So uh, if they're sounding the all clear... I will tentatively go along with them, but obviously I'm going to keep an eye on La Palma because we are living through strange times. I do not need to repeat that. We are definitely living through strange times, as will become apparent as we go through this morning's conversation. So the first item in my items and radio pictures is about the Webb Space Telescope. Webb was launched literally a week ago on Christmas Day, and on the first day of the new year, it's almost halfway to its orbiting point, which will be around the so-called L2 position, which is opposite the sun on the night side of the Earth, about a million miles away from the planet. And the reason they're putting it there, and it's not going to be at a point, it's going to be kind of orbiting around a center of mass, is because that's one of the five equilibrium points in a two-body system, in this case, the Sun and the Earth, where something can be established in a semi-stable orbit, and it will kind of orbit around the center of mass as the Earth orbits the Sun. It will stay locked in this kind of halo orbit around the center of the L2 point by a few thousand miles. There are a couple of other human spacecraft in the same vicinity. And before you get all hot and bothered and say, oh, collision, no, no. 
as Uhura said in one episode, it's a big galaxy, Mr. Scott. In fact, it's really a big solar system. So even though they are within a few thousand miles of each other, think of two little gnats orbiting in a stadium the size of the uh, Colosseum in Rome or, or uh, you know, let's say one of the football stadiums uh, in Houston or back east. So the odds of anything colliding with anything, even if we have a couple of other things parked in that same vicinity, is infinitesimal. Um, so it's safe there, and it's about halfway to there. And if you go to item number one, this is a daily update. In fact, it's even more than daily. It's um, it, it it's actually sometimes they update uh, several times a day, depending upon the timeline for unfolding the mechanical elements of this extraordinarily complex space telescope, which is basically like Ruber Goldberg on stereo. And if you don't know what that reference is to, you have Google. So Google Rube Goldberg and have fun. Um, tomorrow, on Sunday, on January 2nd, according to this official James Webb Space Telescope website, courtesy of our friendly local neighborhood space agency, i.e. NASA, they are going to begin work on what's called the tensioning of the tennis court-sized Kevlar aluminized sun shield, which comes in five layers that will be separated by several inches to allow heat to be screened by reflection from the actual telescope and then radiate sideways through each layer. So the first layer gets the brunt of the sunlight. Um, there's actually a companion website that I didn't list tonight, and I will do that uh, um, you know, sometime between now and next weekend, where you can actually see temperature sensors on the sun side and on the cold side. And there's this incredible differential. I think the high temperatures on the, on the telescope assembly facing the sun are like 90-some degrees. And the low temperature on the shadow side, which is now in the shade of this extended sun shield, even before the layers have been deployed and the tensioning is put in place, the low temperature on the, on the night side, in the shadow, in the vacuum, as this spacecraft is cruising at several thousand miles uh, per hour toward the L2 point, um, is on the order of 300 plus below zero Fahrenheit. So there's a differential between the sun side and the night side already, even with the partial uh, deployment of the shield, of something like 400 degrees. That's only 50 degrees above absolute zero. And the temperatures on the night side, when they you know, get everything in place and they get the the, the shield separated, so there's this nice, you know, vacuum uh, between the layers and only radiation, that is EM radiation, infrared, can pass between the layers. Because, of course, in space in a vacuum, there's no um, convection, there's no air to convect. That's physical movement of air that moves heat around. And there is very little um, um, conduction because of the spars holding 
the shield together and connecting it to the telescope are made of a very, very non-conductive, uh, thermally non-conductive material. So the heat transfer by solid conduction uh, through the beams is very, very, very low. I mean, this is an extraordinary feat of engineering. And so far, something like 107 of the membrane release devices that were necessary um, have all worked perfectly. And that's out of 178 uh, in all on the telescope. So we're really ahead of the curve. Um, everything except for one little sensor glitch where they couldn't tell whether um, a, uh, a um, sun shield um, that was keeping the... Um, uh, Actually, they're called sunshield covers that were keeping the sunshield at the right temperature before deployment. Uh, they had one of those that they didn't really understand from the sensor whether it had deployed or not, you know, kind of rolled up like a window shade out of the way. And then they had two other measurements which said, yes, in fact, it had worked. So everything is working extraordinarily well in this infernally complex machine which is you know something like half a million miles away from the earth tonight and moving away at as I, as I said several tens of thousands of, well not tens of thousands probably up in the order of eight or nine thousand miles per hour now because as it moves uphill away from earth's gravity and the sun's gravity it has been slowing remember in normal space travel with today's primitive rockets, it's all fuss and fury in the beginning, and then you coast. And like anything thrown uphill, you know, as you move further from the gravitational source, your energy bleeds away, gravity reclaims you. But in this case, the uh, spacecraft is moving exactly on its planned trajectory, and it will not slow down until it gets about a million miles away from the Earth in the direction ant anti the sun, away from the sun, on the night side of the planet. Uh, let's see, we've got about uh, 15 minutes till the bottom of the hour, so let me kind of swing into what we're doing. About a month ago, on the 4th of December, we initiated something which apparently had not been done specifically relating to this specific celestial visitor, any time in the previous four years. In the fall of uh, 2017, in October, a very unusual object called a Muamua by NASA was discovered uh, at the Pan-STARRS telescope facility located atop uh, uh, the, one of the high shield volcanoes in the island chain of Hawaii. And from then, this object was tracked, and very quickly it was obvious that it had never been to this solar system before that in fact it was an interstellar visitor. For the first time in modern scientific history, and it was verified quickly because of its velocity, it plunged down toward the solar system from the direction of the northern hemisphere constellation of Lyra, the harp, at about a 33 degree angle to the plane of the ecliptic, the plane uh, in which most of the planets, except for Pluto, 
uh, orbit the sun, kind of like a old-fashioned flat LP record. Now, it's not a perfect plane. There is some slight tilt of the orbits by a degree or two between each other to that plane. But basically, uh, this was measured relative to the Earth's plane, uh, and 33 degrees turns out to be an incredibly significant angle in the whole hyperdimensional model. Well, even more intriguing, remember, the way you do these kind of calculations is you look for significant numbers, and then you look for other numbers, and then you multiply the odds of these separate numbers coming up again and again and again. And when you when you kind of run through the Amuamua calculation, we're up in the order of trillions to one that any of this stuff can be accidental. So based on these numbers, for instance, in addition to that 33-degree uh, angle, which resolves in an equation to 19.5, as I've done many times on this show, it turned out that as a muamua coming down at an extraordinary speed in excess of uh, uh, escape velocity from the sun, making a almost right-hand turn around the sun at about, um, uh, well, a very significant distance from the sun, which I'll like, let uh, David talk about, at its closest approach to the sun, it was making that screaming left-hand turn. It was moving at about 195,000 miles per hour. And if that number sounds familiar, 195,000, well, forget the thousands. 195, 19.5. The way this game is played is you get rid of the decimal points and you look at the string of numbers. So that was two data points that said to me, 19.5, oh, this has to be an emissary, not a natural object, not an asteroid, not a comet, not some bizarre celestial phenomenon never seen by terrestrial astronomy before, but a deliberately sent visitor to this solar system at this particular time not only in human history, but at this particular time in the 26,000-year, give or take, processional cycle, which modulates the physics of the Earth, both biology and consciousness and geophysics and atmospheric physics and energy input and output. All these things are invisibly modulated by the precession of the Earth um, on its axis in roughly 26,000 years. So again, that's another weirdness that you multiply the odds that this unique artificial visitor, as defined by too many of the right numbers showing up in its orbital calculations, in its trajectory, in its whip around the sun, you add to that the fact that it didn't just wander by at any old time, it wandered by literally as we were transitioning from one processional Vedic era to the next in that period of transition. And again, as we'll be talking about this morning, I don't think any of this is an accident. So I formulated an idea which was basically, okay, this is an artificial object sent by somebody at this time in our history, obviously somebody concerned with humans and our history, and who better than maybe 
some extended interstellar members of the family? Or in one variant of the model, was it possible, I thought, and I don't know whether I said this on the air, but was it possible that many thousands of years ago, we literally sent this to ourselves? That a previous high-tech culture, knowing what would happen in terrestrial history and knowing the cycles of cosmic time, particularly the processional cycle, knew that if a time capsule containing crucial information for our civilization now were set up so that it would wander into our ken now when we need it the most to make a successful transition to the next age, the next era, the next phase of human consciousness and development, that it would be sent to us by us on this extraordinary time scale in something which is the most repeatable of any physical phenomenon in the 3D universe, which is essentially an orbit, a very, very, very extended orbit. In other words, it was a time capsule in this model sent to us by us from ourselves. And I approached Oumuamua from that perspective. So I watched with real interest um, a bunch of things that happened. First of all, there was a... um, Uh, a a listening effort funded by a major oligarch, Russian oligarch who is now living in Northern California, who actually rented time on one of the world's biggest radio telescopes, the uh, 140-foot radio facility in Green Bank, West Virginia, and listened for about a week and heard, according to all public statements and press releases and uh, reports, heard absolutely nothing. At that time, kind of one part of me said, well, if this is something on the order of a classic 1960s literature Bracewell probe, named after uh, Ronald Bracewell, who was an engineer, a radio communications engineer uh, at Stanford, I think he was at the Stanford uh, labs, um, he had formulated an idea in the 1960s that interstellar civilizations, when they wanted to probe their nearest star systems, instead of sending radio, which would require a very long time, and there would have to be an intelligent civilization in a star system that would be able to, you know, send a signal. If you send a signal to, let's say, Alpha Centauri, it would take four years for an intelligent civilization to send a signal back. Bracewell said, well, wouldn't it be cheaper to kind of just salt all the nearer stellar systems with robotic AI-type probes, have them park themselves in orbit, and just wait for evidence of life, advanced life, on one of the planets in the star system. We'd have to have a very sophisticated AI probe to do that, but given the rate of which we now know that AI is progressing, uh, in, even in Bracewell's time in the 60s, it was extrapolatable that that kind of computer power and that kind of artificial intelligence, um, I mean, look at the, the writings of Isaac Asimov, you know, robots, things like that. It was not beyond the realm of science that at some point in, let's say, 100 years, we, the human race, could do this. So if you were encountering a civilization 
living on a planet, let's say three, four hundred light years away, even if you were limited by the speed of light and you could send a probe maybe at the tenth the speed of light, it would take a few thousand years to get here. It would go into orbit. Um, if it had arrived here, you know, a few thousand years ago um, and it was appropriately long-lived, which you can do with backups and redundant systems and even the ability to self-manufacture uh, replacement parts, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, real AI is going to be really interesting to, to watch develop. The idea of Bracewell was, well, at some point we might, in terms of Earth science, NASA, etc., find a Bracewell probe orbiting somewhere in our own solar system, and we would talk to it because the signal-to-noise would be infinitely better than trying to talk between the stars directly. And then the probe, with its advanced facilities, would in turn transmit that data back to its home system. Or if you turn the idea around, and we did this kind of uh, experiment, we could build in the ability to make large antennas and you know create lasers and all kinds of ways of again within mainstream science of getting the data home so given that that was part of the scientific literature and given that there were people actually talking in the mainstream like abby Loeb, who then was head of the harvard college observatory um and was very uh uh, you know, out front saying that this thing, Oumuamua, could in fact be some kind of sentient probe or maybe a spacecraft containing inhabitants that had come through the system, uh, perhaps more like Rama in Arthur C. Clarke's uh, brilliant trilogy, Rendezvous with Rama, which I recommend to everyone um, for what would happen if, let's say, this thing had wandered through the system in 100 years our response probably would be very, very different if we had the capability of human spaceflight to literally rendezvous, meaning match velocities, with something moving around the sun at 195,000 miles an hour, rendezvous with it, land on it, and go inside. Imagine if we could do that now. Well, at the moment we can't do that, but uh, there may be uh, interesting developments on the horizon that will allow us to do this even now with a muamua, not waiting for the next visitor to call. Anyway, against this backdrop, the thing that occurred to me that was missing from this public dialogue, including uh, Abby Loeb, was the idea inherent in the Bracewell model that someone on Earth should try to talk to it. So through a rather complex set of circumstances that... Uh, kind of fell out uh, in a very interesting, I might almost say metaphysical way. Um, we put together a team, and we have some of the team members with us tonight, to literally do what apparently no one had done before with a muamua. Basically put together a program of radio transmission and literally send a signal to a muamua to see if anybody was at home, and this is what it sounded like. This is our transmission sent for the first time December 4th, then December 11th, then the 18th, 
and then the 24th, 25th, and 26th, the Christmas weekend. to tell you, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Because the story is only getting, as Alice said in Wonderland, curiouser and curiouser and curiouser. So on the anniversary of a new year, it seemed to me that this would be an appropriate way to begin our conversation. You're on the other side of midnight, our first show of 2022. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and when we return, we will have four of the Enterprise Mission Oumuamua team here to talk about what we've found. Happy New Year, everyone. yet for all lands we'll take a wide good will drought for all lands So suddenly they discovered this thing called deuterium. They've actually shown studies that depleting the water by 30% actually makes mice thrive and grow faster and increasing the deuterium in water by 30% kills them. So in every liter of water, there's approximately six drops of deuterium. Well, if we were to put six drops of cyanide in our water, we probably wouldn't make it. A poison's a poison. Now this is an isotope, so this is a radioactive, but it is stable. But I believe deuterium serves many, many, many purposes. The history, really, what we should know is the globalists have an agenda. And their agenda is to keep us as dumbed down as possible and so we don't recognize what they do and we comply. Part of the way of doing that is keeping it sick. Most water is about 155, but anything about 120 actually can affect us from literally a psychosis level and affecting our pineal gland and our pituitary gland. And of course our right brain. So what happens is excess deuterium makes us sick. 
Even on the National Institute Health website, they talk about deuterium helping propagate leukemia. And that's them admitting, they always have to disclose their BS. That's them admitting it. So you can imagine the other things that it does to our body. It help, we don't resonate, we don't sleep very well. I think it is the single biggest tool that the globalists, the cabal, is the biggest tool they have that puts us in a state that we don't recognize anything and we don't resonate and vibrate at the highest level possible. Hello, Lewis Herms here. Wow, what a fantastic time on the other side of the news with the eclectic cast. What incredible information, and I was so happy to be here. everyone on this uh, no you're not time slipping this is a week after christmas but see i only get to play this song which is one of my favorite songs like once a year and um it's so appropriate it is so appropriate that uh that we play this tonight because what we're looking at is something in the sky which appears to be well, if it's not a Christmas star, it's uh, the closest thing that I can imagine. It's something that if we pursue this research, if we basically follow this like the wise men to uh, Bethlehem, if we follow this where it's leading, it could lead us to something which could transform the earth. I mean, there are literally people in NASA who are, who are talking about what would happen if they find extraterrestrial life in 2022. And as I'm going to talk a bit about tomorrow night, they've actually gone to a, a body of theologians, something like 24 or 25, to ask them to kind of look at what could happen to humankind, to religions, to Christianity, to the Muhammad faith, to the to, you know, Buddhism, to... I mean, it's kind of like Brookings all over again. What would happen if the human race discovers unequivocal evidence that it is not alone? And that, of course, is what the Christmas Star story was kind of all about. Okay, I got it out of my system. 
Um, all right, let me introduce our, our cast of characters tonight because uh, we have a very interesting uh, cadre of people. Um, we've got David Sarita with us. Uh, David is kind of like the lead investigator on this uh, Enterprise mission experiment. He's been doing uh, sacred geometry, sacred numbers, frequencies, symbolic encoding, ancient history translations, finding measurements uh, that relate to these, uh, I won't say magical, but they really are because we know that the same frequencies and the same geometry that David's been dealing with for several decades are in fact part of the hyperdimensional radical physics model, which explains kind of everything the mainstream thinks they know and then goes beyond it. So uh, uh, David was one of the guys that I talked to first, and it was our first conversation that uh, made me wonder, well, what if we were to do something really outrageous? And with his friend Jimmy Blanchett, what if we were to take that radio telescope facility in northern Arizona and point it toward a Muamua and send some of the right codes and frequencies, which apparently none of the mainstream folks, the Breakthrough Listen Project, the government, the deep state, whatever, we have no public knowledge that during Oumuamua's passing through the inner solar system, anybody tried sending. So I thought, why don't we try sending, given that we have something unique and incredibly relevant and incredibly um, anchored in terrestrial human history. Um, why don't we try sending that and see if we get a response? And as we go through the morning, for those of you who are new and joining us, uh, we got a response, but it certainly wasn't like anything that uh, I'd expected. Um, maybe David has a different perspective, but uh, uh, we're getting things that, uh, frankly, are not in my ken with dealing with technology, with SETI transmissions, with classical SETI models, SETI being the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. So we also have Jonathan Womack with us. Uh, John has been exploring the universe with remarkable personal out-of-body experiences since 1965. And that's not the only reason that he's on the panel tonight. He also is one hell of a producer. He is conversant with computer technologies, with algorithms, with software that can take frequencies and display them in visual form so we can see if there is, in, in fact, intelligent encoded information in what we're getting. And there is, you know, put that to rest, there is un, unequivocally, but do we know yet the full spectrum, pun intended, of what they, whoever they are, are trying to tell us. No, we don't. And John is going to be leading us through some further analysis that he's done in the in the last week. We also had Georgia Lambert with us. Now, Georgia, I keep saying she's our resident metaphysician. And you might be asking, well, what is Georgia doing being on a SETI communications team with an errant spacecraft sailing one time through the solar system, leaving in the direction of Pegasus, never to return. Well, that gets into the whole question, who are we talking to, really? Because part of the results, and we will kick this around tonight among uh, uh, all of us, we may not be dealing with ETs in the standard model at all. Like, as you're going to hear, our first responses were not 
classical E.T. SETI responses, as would be expected under any of those historical models going back to uh, Bracewell in the 1960s. So George is here to kind of introduce some different perspectives in a conversation that, frankly, I think is going to encompass multidimensionality, metaphysics, spirituality, and things that go bump in the night. And final but not least is Ron Gerbrun. Ron is our resident generalist. He has background in both metaphysics, archaeology, ancient archaeological systems, uh, epistemology, you name it, and Ron knows something uh, about it. And he's very good at synthesizing different bits of information into a gestalt, into a whole. And that is not an H-O-L-E, it's a W-H-O-L-E. Because the whole tonight is so mysterious. Um, First of all, let me welcome all of you to the other side of midnight once again. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be Thank here. Thanks, Richard. And for people, that, for people who may not Thanks, know your Richard. voices, if, if you can identify for the first couple of times who you are so people can kind of get to know the voices, that'd be useful. Um, David said yes, he's here. Yeah, this is David Sarita here, and uh, Happy New Year to everybody. By ah, the way. yes, yes. And John is here. John is here. <laughs> oh, did I forget to mention John is a musician? Oh. So frequencies come second nature. Georgia is here. Hello. Hi there. Get a little closer to your mic. And finally, last but not least, uh, Ron, you're in down in San Diego, where I understand it's kind of chilly tonight. Oh, uh, yes. Not the, as uh, chilly as here. <laughs> well, no. The weather's gone to hell. And as usual, I don't know where I am, uh, but I'm here. Okay, David, let's start with you. Um, This harebrained idea has turned up such serendipitous uh, discoveries that I'm almost at a loss of where to begin, given that you've been on this trail of ET contact, or, or as Michael Hill says nicely, you know, contact with folks that are not from here. What kind of a tiger, by what kind of tail, do you think we've got? Well, let me just start with a little bit of a quick recap. You know, having read Avi Loeb's book, Extraterrestrial, which is the Harvard astronomer who speculates that Amuamua was an extraterrestrial visitor, he first states that the brightness of the object was 10 times brighter than any rock, so he deducts that it's metallic. And therefore, the artist, you know, sketches of it looking like a long rock would be inaccurate. He said there's a 92% chance it's disc-shaped. And so that's the data you have, plus you have the the sudden acceleration and the lack of comet tail. There's no cometing tail. And so therefore, all these theories about it being... Um, a type of comet that doesn't have a tail really didn't add up when you looked at all the tail. And also, its data on its ratio to width to length is 1 to 5 to 1 to 10. That's a pretty huge range. But generally speaking, Avi said, um, rocks don't travel 
great distances with a long um, shape like that because they'll hit something and break up into a much shorter <clears throat> width to length ratio. So, so it's very odd, and it definitely, in his opinion, was an extraterrestrial visitor. And I noted that its ratio, when it came its closest distance to Earth at 24,200,000 kilometers, the ratio to one astronomical unit, which is which is an Earth-Sun distance, which whose average is 149,597,870, that ratio is 1 to 6.18, <clears throat> and that's the golden number. And remember, if we get rid of our decimal and we just look at the numbers, that's 10 times 0.618, which is the golden portion of the golden ratio, 1 to 1.618. So you would say that is incredibly well organized and not random by any means, and that is a fact that, that I discovered myself. And then now we have Comet Leonard um, appears to also have a golden <clears throat> function. It will reach its closest point to the sun um, on January 3rd in, in two days. So are these are these being organized? Are they being controlled but remotely like some type of AI? Or are, are, do they have an occupant? So it was our idea to use Jimmy Blanchett's antenna and I designed a series of messages, as well uh, did Jimmy Blanchett, to send to Oumuamua December 24th, 25th, and 26th, 2021. And the message went as high as a half a million watts um, to the target. The target, Oumuamua, is presently about 3.7 hours at the speed of radio or the speed of light, all the same. And also, you have to consider this. This is well documented in physics, which is called action at a distance, that that when photons are entangled or electrons are entangled, they have proven that they communicate with each other, circumventing the speed of light limit instantly. So, so therefore, the very fact that Oumuamua was so close to Earth at one point, and now it's much further away, any light that left Oumuamua that entangled, that shared itself with us, is entangled with it, and therefore it is it is possible to communicate through some function of the radio um, technology or radio spectrum that we don't know about faster than light. Because our responses were measured both faster than light and, again, at the speed of light. And, and I did my tests where what I do is I record on a TASCAM with a good AKG microphone my radio, which is tuned to the same frequency as the transmission, 144.1 megahertz, and, and Jimmy repeated it at 432 megahertz, so I have two radios, and I record the chirps. We have a video link up, I believe, on your site tonight, which shows how I do this very briefly. Yeah, let me interrupt. Um, I've, I've got it racked up here. Let me play... Uh. For people that may not have been following this from the beginning, the December 4th responses, Keith put this together for me, and what mm -hmm. we'll play is the original, what you call chirps, which are responses on this handheld Chinese brand uh, 
amateur radio. It actually, you need a license to transmit on the ham band with this radio, but anybody can use it as a receiver. So let me play what we got, and then I'll describe some background, which absolutely, uh, uh, you know, clarifies what, what David was just saying about, uh, you know, connectedness through some potentially higher dimension. So this is what the sound sounds like. And then what we did, Keith slowed it way down, and you're going to hear it slowed by a factor of, I think, 10 to 1, if I remember this correctly. So this is what our our, our response the night of the first test transmission, December 4th, uh, sounded like. If I can get this working. Of course, every time you want to do something. Um, no, that's not what we want. Sorry, guys. So, See, this is what happens when you're your own engineer. Come on. Play the computer. Here we are. That's original. And that's slowed down. One more time. Right. Original. Now slow down. Okay. The thing that makes this so weird is that that night, um, in anticipation of the program, Jimmy started transmitting about a half hour before airtime, about 9.30 Mountain. Uh, as opposed to waiting till around 10 o'clock when we went on the air. And within two minutes, he recorded on a video, which is now item number three in my section of radio pictures, which he's put together, a montage of a series of artificial objects, structured objects, vehicles, craft, uh, flying saucers, UF, whatever you want to call them, they weren't cosmic rays. They weren't noise. They were literal structured craft appearing and disappearing within a couple, three frames. And when you zoom in, as the video does, that's item number three in my section, you'll see that they're each individual geometries and they all look different. And the one thing I've not done is to put the whole montage together to see if they basically make an artificial constellation against the sky because these objects photobombed the antenna in the line of sight to Oumuamua 2.5 billion miles in the dark in that field of view, in the camera field of view, and they deployed themselves in front of that antenna beaming angle during that and then for about three hours uh, after the first appearance. The idea that they appeared within two minutes immediately, to me, tosses out the window that we're dealing with a technology limited to the speed of light and introduces all kinds of other possibilities, uh, one being the quantum entanglement that, David, you just mentioned, but the other being that we're dealing with not three 
dimensional technologies at all, but some kind of hyper-dimensional connection where the vehicles popped from another space into our space, sent transmissions, and then disappeared. And we have yet to correlate the appearance of the signals with the appearance of the craft, uh, and we may have to do that in, in another test transmission in future because we were frankly, none of us, certainly not me, were expecting to almost instantly get responses. And it's the details of the responses that David has been working on decoding, which are absolutely mind-blowing. They're utterly mind-blowing because when you consider we put, I put a series of about six or seven tones from the octaves of the Washington, D.C. monument, which is really an Egyptian obelisk built on U.S. soil, and with the theory that it, it actually is a monopole antenna, and a monopole antenna emits a wavelength four times its height, and the height of the Washington monument itself is actually um, 6,665.125 6, inches because the responses I got on my handheld radio, when it's chirping, I'm holding up a frequency meter. I made a video of what this actually looks like. So if I videotape my frequency meter, when there's a chirp, a number appears and I can freeze it. But I can also go frame by frame through the video of the chirping and pull out the chirps versus the background noise. Now, the background noise produces much smaller numbers. The, the meter I'm using is so sensitive, it'll pick up breathing. It'll pick up any ambient sounds in the room. So I only look at the high numbers. So one of the things that happened, this happened on the 26th of December, and I went into my studio at the speed of light return signal sign, uh, signal transmission from Oumuamua, and I started recording. And they kept giving me this same number, which I captured over three times, so it, it demonstrates repetition. The number they sent me was 666.98, and that would be inches. But what's interesting is they can't send me 6,600 and 65.125 inches, they send me basically one-tenth of that, and the difference between the actual Washington Monument um, one-tenth scale would be 99.929%. So the question is, what they sent me was 666.98 inches. So what I do is I treat that as a monopole. So I take that times four, which is 2,667.92 inches. I take the speed of light in inches because the way you calculate a frequency is you take the speed of light in the same unit of measure you're measuring your wavelength in. So they have to be the same unit. So if I'm my wavelength's in inches, my speed of light's in inches. So I divide the speed of light in inches by my wavelength, and I get my frequency of 400. Uh, it, it is 4,423,990.478 hertz. So, so I do that. I divide it by a musical octave, which is two, ten times, and I get to 432, 4,320.3 hertz. So, so what that means is I'm accurate to 432.03 
on my sliding 10 scale. Now, the Washington Monument itself gives me as a monopole a frequency of 442,709.351 hertz. I divide that by an octave 10 times, and I'm at 432.333 hertz. Now, we all, we, we all know what 432 is. We've had Michael Hill here. We've, we, we understand what a master A note it is. And I also note that I documented the sudden birth of, of technological achievement the moment the Washington Monument was born. The moment it's born, we suddenly have the invention of alternating current direct current from Thomas Edison, radio, remote control, I, all starts happening within a certain radius of the monument. So the so think of the monument as a monopole transmitter that musically at a very high 432 octave and all of these all of the subsidiary octaves are all coming off of the monument all the way down to 432.33 hertz and suddenly human consciousness explodes in the upper eastern section of the United States and Canada because Alexander Graham Bell built, invents the telephone right then in the upper eastern Atlantic. So what this demonstrates is the message we get back from Amua Amua is, a, is it's like they want us to go higher instead of a 432 hertz monopole octave. They're taking us to 4,320 hertz monopole octave transmitter. So I believe the message they gave us is, see, we didn't send them the height of the Washington Monument. We sent them six or seven of its frequencies, of its octaves. So how the heck did they send me back the Washington Monument <laughs> measurement with a tiny, tiny – is it a correction? <coughs> is it a <coughs> – is that a <coughs> excuse me <coughs> an attunement drinking water helps yeah i'm my mouth is getting dry yeah that's why i have water i'm just so excited here. i'm i'm actually so excited that i can't stand it because this is so 100% in our face with absolute proof that we got a message back from amua mua if it doesn't mean that they're all, they they gave me because of the decimal idea that they can't send me the exact decimal of, of of what the what the message is. It's just a factor of ten. If I multiply six 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 point nine eight inches by ten, then I'm right at the size scale of the Washington Monument, and the difference is tiny. Actually, I'll tell you hold tiny, it hold it there at the top of the hour, right there. I mean, David says we got a message back from a mua mua. I don't know, because this doesn't follow any normal SETI protocol, which is you send a message at the speed of light by radio, you wait the amount of time required, you know, you double the time, message there, message back, and you record an answer. That's, that's the model. That's the theory. Instead, on the night of December 4th, Jimmy begins to send a message, and within minutes, we get answers. We get complex numbers, we get frequencies, we get hyperdimensional constants. We get something which is delving into who we are and what we have been on this planet for thousands and thousands of years, immortalized 
in sacred sites all around the world. So are we talking to a muamua, or are we talking to a network of folks out there just waiting for the human race to respond, for the human race to basically ask the question, who are we really, and what are we doing in this place? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.